Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. You might have heard me say before the news, the, the two things that we're going to talk about today, Summer of Soul and Schmigadoon, have almost nothing in common, except they both begin with the letter S and they're both basically about music. Uh, but after that, they diverge about as far uh, at the fork in the road as they possibly could. Except the, I mean, the other thing they have in common is, in my opinion, they're both very enjoyable and intriguing uh, and full of surprises. So, uh, speaking of full of surprises, let me tell you who the panel is today. Tanisha Dugan is artistic producer at TheaterWorks. Steve Metcalf is director emeritus at the University of Hartford's President's College. And he, he actually has like a new thing that he's going to be doing, but I don't even know if it can be formally announced yet. I'll leave that up to him. Uh, but it's musically related. Uh, and I should say also, just, you know, kind of one of these interesting little through lines that we're so fond of. So, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I was driving in my car, listening to Where We Live, like I do. And uh, they were doing a thing about theater, and Tanisha Dugan was on uh, with Jackie Hubbard, the artistic director at Ivoryton, who directed a musical with music by Steve Metcalf and a book by me and lyrics by our friend Larry Bloom. Hi, Larry. Get well. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm just saying. I don't even know what point what the point of that is. Uh, anyway, Schmigadoon. Uh, we're going to talk about Schmigadoon first and then Summer of Soul. That's Questlove's documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival. Um, Schmigadoon begins with the premise of a very modern couple who are, you know, in kind of this sort of provisional, as long as things keep working out, we'll stay together, New York City 2021 mindset. Uh, but things aren't working out that great, and to revive their relationship, uh, they go on some kind of uh, a retreat, I guess. Uh, they wind up on a walk, they're in a storm, and the next thing they know, they're in this very strange place that closely resembles uh, a very technicolor, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein-y kind of musical, which is almost good news to one of the characters, played by Saturday Night Live's wonderful Cecily Strong, and, and not very good news to the other character, who's played by also very terrific uh, Keegan-Michael Key, of uh, Key and Peele, and lots of other things, too. Uh, he doesn't like musicals that much. She actually has sort of a, you know, really un, uh, uh, unquenched craving uh, for them. And before Steve and Tanisha dig in here, let's hear the song uh, that was specifically written by the creators to be the song that would most annoy and appall Josh, the Keegan-Michael Key character. Are you trying to tell me that you've never heard of corn pudding? She's never heard of corn pudding! Oh, no. It's a song. You just started another song. it constantly sometimes i get to wondering does she love it more than me does she love it more than me Put the bowl in the belly because it's good for the soul. Who wants corn pudding? We want corn pudding. 
Okay, I think you get the idea. All right, let's bring the the panelists in on this. Uh, Steve Metcalf uh, and uh, Tanisha Dugan. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to the show. Um, Tanisha, why don't you get us going? You and I, it seems like we've talked about a lot of musicals on the show uh, of late. Uh, this is not a musical. It's sort of a, a meta commentary on a musical. How'd you like it? I was like, is it not a musical? I feel like it is. Well, maybe it is a musical. A musical. I don't know. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be open to that. I'm totally open to that. You know, it, it's cute. And and I would totally, like, spend a weekend watching all of the episodes if they were, if they allowed me to. Um, I, I really had a good time with it. Um, I think, oh, my goodness, Lauren Michaels is clearly, you know, we know he's a king of, of entertainment, but to see the kind of money poured into the set design for this <laughs> uh, is like mind boggling. Um, but it's delightful and it's silly and, and it's, and it's fun. And I'm curious where it will go. You know, I, I definitely want to catch some more episodes. Um, and I do think, you know, as we look to Broadway reopening and, and what that means, I think there's actually something really wonderful about introducing musicals to us in this way. Right. Um, I kind of, I kind of dig it. I, by the way, that that first part was spoken so much like a true producer. Look at all the money they've got to spend on stuff. Um, but it's a little bit unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, some of those, some of that, like stuff. I just, you know, the carnival scene where you know she falls in love with this guy who lives in the Brigadoon town and they go through the tunnel of love and I'm just like this is like ridiculous and <laughs> amazing alright Mr. Me- Mr. Medcalf uh, give us your uh, kind of opening salvo about this yeah so first of all I, I certainly agree with Tanisha uh, this, this thing is fun of course I'm one of those people who doesn't necessarily always embrace fun <laughs> but um you know, I've been I've been reading a little bit about this thing before it uh, dropped, as it were, recently, and I and I had kind of uh, some, what shall we say, some concerns. Um, you know, whether this was going to be like a little too cute or a little too cloying, um, but as it turns out, it seems to me that it strikes a really interesting balance. I mean, it's kind of a satire and a parody of all the you know, conventions of musical comedies that we've known over the years. Um, and, and yet it's done in a way that is uh, respectful of those traditions and, and uh, uh, you know, even affectionate about them. And I, and I think the interesting thing, uh, maybe above all else, is, as you alluded, Colin, that there is the Keegan-Michael Key character who, who's kind of the stand-in for every dude you know, because mm-hmm. men are not supposed to like musicals, and he doesn't, and and that very fact becomes a kind of an animating force uh, as as the show unfolds in in a very kind of amusing way. I don't know where that will go, by the way. I don't know whether by the end he will have been won over or or not, um, but it certainly helps take the cloyingness off the thing, and and. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I was surprised by how much I liked it. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think Key's role, he's doing kind of an interesting thing. And the role is written in a very interesting way because he rejects the musical much more than the Cecily Strong character, Melissa, does. But he embraces the mythology more than she does. So there's the thing you find out right away. This is not a spoiler is they can only get out of this place that they're stuck in 
through some act of true love. And they find this out from a leprechaun played by Martin Short. Um, and, and so Josh buys into this, you know, and is very he's interested in getting out, first of all, but he's he's also ready to try all of this stuff. At one point, uh, Strong looks at him. Melissa looks at him. They're having one of their many fights uh, and she says, you're basing your decision about our relationship on something a leprechaun told you. Uh, and but at that level, he you know, he's he's much more down with, you know, with at least sort of the theology of this place, if not the music. Um, and, you know, so Tanisha, we used to say a little bit about the music. You know, I don't think any song is a parody of a specific uh, musical musical number. It's like a lot of musical numbers. And I, I actually think that ability to kind of get in the area without being too dead on about sending up a particular song is kind of brilliant. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it is certainly Rodgers and Hammerstein. I mean, there's like, there's no doubt that that is the world that we're living in. I think I'm always, I consistently thought of Oklahoma as I was watching it. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is that, that musical. Um, one note about sort of, you know, your, your comment about Melissa not wanting to buy into the mythology. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me about the story is that part of the reason why she's not interested in the mythology to me is that it is challenging the mythology of their love relationship. Um, and so her investment in it seems a little less so um, precisely because, if 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 their relationship were deemed a true love match, they would have theoretically been released out of out of Schmigadoon uh, sooner than they anticipated. So I think there's something really kind of interesting about gender roles and and the way we look at our relationships and 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 how we want to I don't know uh, navigate them. Uh, whether it's the true love story uh, of our princess. Uh, dreams when we were kids or something else, which I think is kind of an interesting uh, narrative and theme for this project as a musical to sort of unpack. Um, but but back to the music. Yeah, you know, the, the music is, is, if you wanted a sort of 101 in American musicals, this is it. <laughs> this sort of gives you, without, I think it's missing the Sondheim darkness. Maybe we'll get there in the later uh, episodes. But if you, if you're looking at sort of Early American movie musicals. This is this is definitely a, a 101. So yeah, well, we should ask the guy who uh, writes music uh, about this too. I mean, uh, say a little bit about how you do perceive this music, uh, Maestro Metcalf. Well, again, I, I I agree with Tanisha, and I think that the um, the interesting thing here is that these songs are crafted. Yes, of course they they echo and they point backwards to to some of the Rodgers and Hammerstein tunes. In fact, I was, I was just thinking, as we listened a moment ago to that corn pudding thing, this hadn't occurred to me the first time I watched it the other night, but but there, there's a sort of a, this was a real nice clam bake uh, echo to that song. And certainly the overture, which is maybe the most overtly uh, kind of based on something, uh, takes us back to the, to the Oklahoma Overture, but again, in a very clever, very um, uh, knowing kind of a way. I, th I think these songs are crafted not to be just little cute throwaways, but really to be songs in their in their own right. And in that sense, I think they hold up nicely. I I should say here that, as some of you may know out there, um, 
there's a local connection because Mike Morris, who some folks may know because he had a long time association with, uh, with the Hart School as a music director and conductor. And also Colin you, uh, has been the music director down at Iverton yep. for the summers. Uh, orchestrated a bunch of these songs uh, uh, brilliantly, um, and you can and you can see in the care and the size and legitimacy of the orchestra and the orchestrations how seriously they they're taking all this. Uh, not not to mention, as Tanisha pointed out, how much money Lauren Michaels had to invest in this <laughs> thing. But but the music I think is done with great care and and it shows and 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 that's an important element i think right I, actually you know we was, we're saying robert rogers and hammerstein and, and we mean it although i think it sort of spreads out from there i mean cross that bridge is is pretty clearly uh, a little bit evocative of guys and dolls that sit down you're rocking the boat uh, right. but, and, and of course schmigadoon is is, is Brigadoon. I mean, Brigadoon is not a Rogers and Hammerstein show either. And and as far as Corn Putin goes, the creators say that they were thinking of uh, just the group dances in uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers uh, and also of Shapoopy from uh, just kind of the <laughs> nonsense song from Music Man. Uh, Steve and I have a very bizarre connection to Music Man. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> so, um, next topic. Here. Next topic. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, well, first of all, I, I think maybe we've gone too long without playing another one of the songs here. So um, this is uh, uh, this, Tanisha's already referenced this song. This is the kind of um, mutual seduction song called "Enjoy the Ride." Also, I think has a little bit of a, a guys and dolls feel to it. A little bit of if I, if I were a bell uh, uh, sound to it. Uh, this is this uh, this funhouse tunnel of love moment between Melissa and the very attractive Danny Bailey. Am I about to get a song? My own song? <gasps> I am. to love and romance I've never left a thing to chance Stiffer than a froggy in formaldehyde Now it's time to enjoy the ride Oh, it's my range and everything What about plans you've made? Plans are for sissies I've heard you'd never stray Just give me some kisses Always used to let my conscience be my guide Now it's time to enjoy the ride So, Tanisha, another thing that Lauren Michaels can get is kind of everybody that he wants. Uh, so in this, we have people like Kristen Chenoweth uh, uh, and Alan Cumming, who are Broadway veterans, uh, done a lot of stage work. Martin Short, who's this superbly kind of crossover kind of guy. Same with Jane Krakowski, who I have, I've only seen the first three episodes. I guess number four dropped in the middle of last night. Uh, our, our producer, Lily, has seen it and says it's the best one so far. Uh, people like Fred Armisen from Saturday Night Live. Dove Cameron, uh, who's this kind of seductive teenager named Betsy, who I think sort of comes to us out of the, the Disney empire where they specialize in sexualizing teenagers, which is maybe kind of an industry joke. And this, the guy that you hear there, I may be saying his name wrong, Aaron Tveit, uh I'm not sure, but he's also doing a lot of stuff on Broadway. And either, I know he's got Tony nominations, if not a Tony. So, I mean, Tanisha, the, the characters are fun to watch, right? It's just fun to watch some of these people do stuff they can do. 
So fun. So fun. And and it's interesting. You know, I'm not a huge SNL fan, but I do know Cecily Strong's work. And and for some reason, most of the sketches I've watched her do, she has been singing in. So it sort of feels like this this was the conversation between Cecily and Lauren. Like, I want to, to do musicals. I love to, like, I'm curious what her past resume was before she came to SNL because... Um, this just feels like the perfect in-the-pocket project for her. And I love all of these cameos. Um, I love the sort of mashup from Broadway to to sort of film and, and our TV favorites and, and, you know, some Broadway folks we may not know. But if you're on the inside of Broadway, you're, uh, you're definitely aware uh, of some of these actors. I, ha- I have to, like, pause and just laugh at your Disney comment because it is so true. But then also, like, what happens when you cultivate young people and they turn into adults there's there's like inevitably that awkward space um and becomes a a a point of plot in in schmigadoon as josh is trying to understand is this woman old enough to actually be uh married to me i think that Um, i think that's one of the i don't think it's being married that he's thinking about so much but i think it's one of the funniest sequences he's trying to get some kind of clue about how old she is and there's a very very funny moment with this tree her father planted when she was born and he's going jesus not that big a tree right now oh my god yeah so Uh, good so I mean, good. I mean that's another thing about this thing. I mean, I I found it laugh out loud funny a lot. I laughed a lot in episode two. There's a there's a number that Alan Cumming has that just kind of destroyed me in general, and a very funny exchange because because Cecily Strong's character is trying to figure out all the time where she fits into the musical. Uh, you know, does she she's, is she going to have a number? Does she is she supposed to sing here? Uh, and and Cumming does a very funny take on that. You know, Steve, there's an interesting thing that we should at least acknowledge, and and they acknowledge it too, which is we. We say Rodgers and Hammerstein, and we're talking about this sort of incredible sunniness uh, of really, really nice clam bakes uh, and stuff like that. But, you know, Oklahoma is a really dark story, and Carousel's kind of a dark story. And, and the oddity of this is that, you know, what we remember, what particularly musical haters remember, is this kind of cloying sense of optimism and sweetness, which is not the entire story of most of these musicals. Yeah, well, I think that actually gets into a a bigger question of where Broadway shows fit into the culture these days. I mean, what I mean is, it it was like, what, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, everybody was kind of worried that Broadway musicals were turning into just a bunch of Disney kind of theme parks up on a stage with huge budgets and, you know, a lot of special effects and, and, you know, a clientele that was mostly international tourists and, and that the musical kind of comedy itself tradition was no longer kind of relevant to anybody. Um, and I, and I really think that has changed in the last 10 years. I mean, obviously Lin-Manuel gets a lot of credit for that. I mean, I think in the Heights changed that to some extent, Hamilton exploded it altogether. Um, but you know shows like in the like the band's visit and Hades Town and others in recent years i think have kind of bro- brought broadway back into the conversation even where people who don't like shows i mean like the like the key character um can can sort of uh, talk about that and still have it be a relevant conversation i mean i think i think the the fact that broadway is now something that people think about and talk about and even bother to spend millions of dollars uh, satirizing 
is a is a healthy thing and a good thing. Yeah, I mean, to just ask our producer. Um, actually, some some of the stagings um, next to normal uh, at TheaterWorks have have been really really fun and kind of proof that even in, in a smaller kind of house, you can do something like this. Right. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I think I love you know sort of what you've offered in terms of like the musical while on the surface feels like this cloying, fun, joyful, jubilant thing actually is working something potentially subversive underneath it in the story. And it makes me, one, curious about where Schmigadoon will go because I think SNL and Lorne Michaels' work has always been both fun and a commentary on where we are, how we are, what we are. And I'm curious if this if this project lives in that space as well. But I think that's the that's kind of the genius of the American musical. Um, and as a producer, I can't tell you how many times I'm in in those conversations, both in my own theater, but with other theater makers around the country, where you talk about like the comfort of your audience, right? And this idea that the work that we produce must somehow keep folks in in nothing but safe space all the time. And I think what you've sort of you know, lit a light bulb for me is like, oh, there is this art form that we created uh, that allowed us to both end if we did it right. Um, and I and I and I am quite curious if if Schmigadoon will, while still staying fr- outwardly frothy, um, will, will it will it offer something else um, inside of it? And I see and I see glimmers of that. I see that glimmers of that as this couple is navigating how they will survive or not. I see glimmers of it uh, in the Alan Cummings conversation as we watch this married man um, with these very um, interesting and telling pieces of art around his home. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it, it, it's, it's doing two things that, that I, I'm very excited um, by. Right. That would be Mayor Menlove. Um, Mayor all right. Menlove. All right. Yeah. We, we're going to have to move from there to 1969 when Oscar Hammerstein has been dead for nine years and there's really kind of nothing recognizably a musical on Broadway. Oh, Calcutta in 1776 were the only shows that year that anybody would even remember. But there are other things going on in New York, including this incredible festival uh, uptown on Sunday afternoons and evenings. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. Uh, right now, let's uh, go out with one more song from Schmigadoon. Let's cross that bridge when we come to it. But now that I'm single still at 23, I've got a new philosophy. Find that bridge and cross it now. Find that bridge and cross it right now. Let the other gals keep waiting, wasting time procrastinating. Find that Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. That, of course, at least if you're of a certain age, is the Edwin Hawkins Singers. Uh, they were among the performers at something called the Hartford Cult- uh, the Har- Hartford. We should be so lucky. Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969. Uh, it was on Sundays, uh, a series of Sundays uh, with headliners that include, included the Fifth Dimension, Mahalia Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Mango Santa Maria, Nina Simone. Uh, it uh, took place, as I say, in the summer of 1969. The night before the first day performance was the Stonewall Riot. Uh, the moon landing happened while Stevie Wonder was on stage at the Harlem Cultural Festival. Uh, and uh, a little while after this, on October 15th in the fall, uh, was the Vietnam moratorium. That sort of kind of gives you kind of a sense of where we are. Um, all of it was being filmed by a man named Hal Tolchin, uh, who thought he had gold. He thought he had what he referred to as black Woodstock. Uh, but in fact, what happened was all of his footage just kind of sat there uh, in an archive and never getting used for decades and decades and decades, despite his efforts. Uh, and n- now Questlove uh, has, uh, in fact, uh, taken that footage and turned it into a very interesting documentary. Uh, not exactly a concert film, uh, something else, I think, something probably more than that. So, uh, Steve Metcalf, you were the first person to begin singing the praises uh, of of this to me. Uh, so tell us sort of, you know, what, what moved you about it? Well, I, I really was bowled over by this thing. And I suppose I need to start by saying, like so many people, I was embarrassed to realize that I had not been aware of this event, even though I was like in college. If it makes you feel any better, neither had Questlove. When they came to him with this, he had never heard of the Har- Harlem Cultural Festival. So anyway, Yeah, continue. well, yeah, I was going to say that in the last few weeks, we've discovered that a lot of people um, ha- have admitted the same thing. So, you know, that just shows, I guess, how obtuse our culture can be about certain things, especially when you compare the amount of attention that Woods, Woodstock from the same summer got. And Woodstock, you know, I suppose in its own way was socially important, although musically it was kind of a mess in some ways. Um, whereas this thing musically it is just stunning and, and you're, you're just pulled over by a bunch of things, including seeing some of these artists like Stevie and Sly when they were young and and uh, and then seeing in the very same film somebody like Mahalia Jackson, who of course by that time was was the absolute reigning queen of gospel music. Um, I mean, the whole thing is just very moving, and and I and I think uh, it begs to be watched over and over. 
Yeah, I, my sense is we need to watch it a bunch of times because there's a lot of very quick cutting in there with a, a lot of this sort of news-oriented and commentary and uh, social commentary-oriented footage spliced in very quickly. Almost By the so way, that, if, I, yeah. if I may add one thing, I, I also, and I, and I notice other people online saying this, you know, now that we know that this was six separate events over six weeks, uh, I, I have to wonder whether Questlove or somebody is going to show us some additional footage because obviously we only uh, in this movie have only seen a very small percentage of what the totality of this thing was. Could be a director's cut. Uh, I know his initial cut was three hours and 25 minutes or something. So he, he yeah, he, he would like to, he needed to boil that down. So Tanisha, there's, there's why uh, Ken Burns's things are like days long. Yeah. Somebody answered that question. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you could do a five part thing with this yeah. and it would be, I, I think pretty interesting. I think Questlove had a different idea about, he, about what he wanted to do. We should say this thing won two major prizes at, at Sundance. Uh, so maybe his instincts are good. Yeah, I don't know. Tanisha, just give me some of your reactions here. So I think uh, the first sort of, I think, uncomfortable thing to say is like the idea that a sort of large black cultural moment gets erased from our collective memory is not an accident. It's by design. Right. I think that's why we're experiencing Tulsa and Seneca Village and Rosewood and, and all of those things, because um, that's just a part of our American amnesia. Um, and so I think it's wonderful when these oral stories uh, become uh, canonized in a more uh, Western way, whether it's through documentation via film or the written word or what have you. I think we ought to just like step into the discomfort of that American reality and then go, oh, maybe this next time around when whatever cultural moment comes up next, we that is not um, not segregation. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is that is either completely black and segregated or multiculti that we do the work of remembering um, and uh, of carrying it forward. That being said, um, I uh, I loved this, um, you know. It, it, you know, I heard my dad singing in the in the background because I knew these are songs that he knew um, and could recall. It was great to to see Stevie, you know, uh, in a in a way that, you know, songs in the key of life is sort of the the album that that I know best as a millennial. So to be able to sort of see him in this different way was amazing, and it also contextualized for me um, the BET Awards. Um, which probably feels like a very um, strange reference to our audiences on this on this show today. Uh, but I always chuckled when um, you would watch like the BET Music Awards and it would be like Kirk Franklin and the baby, right? And you'd mm-hmm. just be like, this is wild. Like, why are these things uh, together? And then sort of rerouting myself in Black church and and Black music and the ways in which those two things stand side by side with our activism and our politics, thinking of Jesse Jackson in, in this and, and Al Sharpton as one of the main narrators of this project. Uh, it, it kind of, I, what I love that Questlove did in this is that he he connected these threads that are so essential to Blackness and also asked an outer question about what it means for our Americanness. 
Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the Stevie's, there's an interesting moment that's being documented here, too. You know, so Stevie, this has been my summer of Stevie. I spent a lot of time thinking about him and listening to him and stuff like that. So in 1969, he's almost going to have this, he's two, he's less than two years away from his 21st birthday, which will free him to a certain degree from Barry Gordy. He gets out of a a contract in which Barry Gordy kind of controls his life, uh, or at least his artistic output. Uh, And and he, uh, he eventually makes music of my mind there's another album he makes first that i don't think is quite as definitive but um uh, where i'm coming from is that what it's called i can't remember that the first album but uh music of my mind so he's very close to being able to really kind of express who he is musically and and you know, the only song we see him play is should be which is a i'm not going to try to get through the entire title but <laughs> should be which is a great song but it isn't any kind of definitive stevie song and i think quest love is kind of Picking that as sort of an indication uh, of—I um, mean, you can hear a little bit in one of the piano fills. Uh, you haven't done nothing, I think. You, the the future song, you haven't done nothing. There's a way in which there's a lot of predictive stuff going on there. And similarly, Sly, Sly and the Family Stone. You know, one thing Questlove has said is that as he looked at the audience footage, the older audience members didn't really know this act, and they weren't sure they liked it. The kids were going nuts. The rest of them were the older audience was sort of going. Ah, geez, I don't know, you know, and they got a girl playing the trumpet and what's going on here? And and then they sort of got caught up in it. And so, I mean, Metcalf, I think one of the things that's fun here, as Tanisha's saying, first of all, it's very small C Catholic in its embrace of uh, Afro-Cuban stuff with Manga Santa Maria and Ray Barreto, gospel stuff, uh, you know, but also there's sort of an interesting moment in music generally, right? Music is going to change the way it always does. Well, for sure. Uh, I mean, let's remember that in 1969, it was still the case that, I mean, even though that's a almost a kind of a, I don't know, watershed moment, I think, in many ways, uh, it was still the case that, like, the same radio station that played Stevie and Marvin Gaye and Sly was still playing, like, Sammy Davis singing I Gotta Be Me and... Johnny Cash singing "A Boy Named Sue." I mean, th- those those songs were all on the charts together. So there, we still had that 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 kind of crazy quilt uh, mashup of music before we got so fragmented and so niched uh, that we are that we are now. And the same is true, it seems to me, of that of that festival. You know, which is one of the interesting things. I I didn't quite perceive the Sly thing, I guess, the way you did, although. Oh, yeah. I do think I perceive that the fifth dimension, who is to me is an interesting kind of phenomenon in itself, because, you know, as as Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis have often said, you know, they 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 were disappointed, I think, uh, in their career that they were sort of perceived as, I don't know, not funky enough or something and uh, appealing to white audiences more than than they wished or or intended even. Um but but I, I think that uh, most musicians really respect the fifth dimension because they were very versatile. They were very gifted people in in many ways, and and I think their performance, you know, at the festival, kind of kind of I hope will win people over to the fact that you know maybe they weren't the funkiest thing going, but they were really good musicians, and and they brought something to that, and I think the crowd at the time recognized that and and maybe belatedly uh, other people are as well so that it's just one example i think of 
catching these people at different points in their journeys, you know, Stevie and Sly and Dimension and, and you know, others as well, which makes the thing just, you know, extra interesting historically. Yeah. I just want to be clear. The thing I said about Sly, that's Questlove's take on it. He, that's, he, oh, is that right? And, and his next project is a documentary about Sly Stone. Um, that's what he's going to do with the kind of momentum he's, he's generated from this. So uh, I think we can all definitely look forward to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I, there's so much more that I, I want to say about it, but I want to go back to, to you on this, Tanisha. I guess, you know, because you are uh, a young, young flower uh, compared to us old rotting uh, elm trees. Um, I mean, how much of this, was, was any of this music new to you? Was, this, like, was there stuff here that you were going, wow, I got to go check that out? So, no, there wasn't anything new to me because all of these artists I ha- was aware of. Um, and most of these, these songs I had heard in my life because uh, it takes elm trees to teach us flowers how to then become uh, or cultivate the next <laughs> batch of elm trees. And so I had an elm that uh, was definitely keeping me hip to the music before today. Um, so yeah, so for, for me, this was a a kind of callback to the stuff that I had heard before, but actually getting a visual right to this music because I, yes, I've seen the photos of my parents and their friends in this time, right? My parents were 14 at this point. Um, and yes, I've seen photos in the years to come, but to see live video of people not only the musicians performing it at this particular time in their life and seeing them in their vibrancy, but also seeing these crowds in this neighborhood um, respond to these artists is, is really, it's remarkable for me as a culture maker, right? To go, oh yeah, this, this thing, this series of events actually binds us together as a community if, if done well. And the sort of, genius of being able to pull together these artists i mean gladys knight you know like these are these are like icons of american music that i'm sure in 1969 we're like oh that's a cute act oh i wonder what's going to happen to um some of these some of these singers you know what's going to happen to to sly stone well you know will will he you you don't know that these artists are going to be you know you could be sigh right one hit wonder or could end up being beyonce you just don't know when you see these things, see these artists at these concerts. So for me, it was as much about like, oh, there is a lineage of making moments, making cultural um, activities for communities that that is transformative. And and when I'm thinking, maybe this, <laughs> maybe it's time to give up on on producing these things. I go, oh no, no, there there is there is innate and essential value to them. All right. So in terms of like whose career is really going to take off, the thing you just uh, brought up, I've got a piece of mind-blowing trivia about this. Um, so this guy, Hal Tolchin, who is shooting all this, he told the festival organizers uh, that he wouldn't be able to shoot the sixth day because he was under contract to start shooting a pilot uh, for some kids show for public television. Now, that turned out to be Sesame Street, which is not the, <laughs> that's not the mind-blowing piece of trivia. So what he said was, if you've got anybody really good, any of your big names, try to move them to one of the, the first five days. 
first five Sundays because I'm not going to be able to shoot six. So, you know, whatever whatever you do on six, just understand it, it won't be. And so they said, OK, we'll do kind of a Miss Harlem pageant on uh, on that day. And, we, and we'll 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 book a couple of, you know, up and coming people who are. So one of those uh, one of those acts was called Listen, My Brothers and Company. At least that's what it was called on the poster. What that was, was I think 17 year old Luther Vandross, uh, wow. who had never been seen by anybody before, who was like in some arts program down on the Lower East Side or something uh, where he got a bunch of people together. And there's several funny things about that. So first of all, he doesn't get to be in the movie and, and Tolchin doesn't get to shoot the, the, the essentially the debut of Luther Vandross. And I think some of the people that he wound up working with for a really long time. But somehow or other, Tolchin is back there enough to, to see him anyway or get some sense of him, which is why Luther Vandross is in several of the first Sesame Street episodes. <laughs> he, he and that group are in there. Uh, my other piece of uh, of trivia, and I'm going to throw it back to Metcalf for a, a final comment, was that uh, the, on the Gospel Day with Mahalia Jackson, and there's quite a little team up between Mahalia Jackson and, and Mavis Staples, Aretha Franklin had been booked to be with Mahalia Jackson on that day and had to scratch for some reason. So as good as this movie was, one thing Questlove has said is, I could have had Aretha Franklin <laughs> singing with Mahalia Jackson. Anyway, and, and Steve, maybe that's a good place to end as a guy who used to play uh, uh, keyboards in a uh, a black gospel church in Hartford. I mean, it's kind of the gospel part of this is its almost own separate piece of fun. Well, that's true. And that, I'm sure that wasn't by accident because, you know, in those days there, there was still a lively tension um, in, in the sense that, you know, many people both within and outside the church felt like, you know, gospel music and the world of, of rock or soul or what have you, popular music should not mix. And there was a there was a, a period of tension where in the gospel world, uh, folks were starting to use electric guitars and amplification and big drum sets and stuff. And and it was not it was not universally em- embraced at all. So so uh, I wondered about that as I watched the film, and then I realized later on that Mahalia's uh, appearance as well as as Mavis Staples was one of the separate days from the other folks. In other words, you know, Mahalia didn't didn't come down off the stage and then Sly came up. You know, it didn't it didn't it didn't happen that way. I do want to follow up very quickly if we have a moment sure. on something Tanisha said because uh you know Gladys Knight, who I have the greatest regard for, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was a fairly young act when we saw her in 69. Um, I just want to say, and this is a... Uh, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I know. I've, I've been challenged on this. I just want to say that I think the Gladys Knight and the Pips version of Grapevine is the equal of, uh, you know, of the Marvin Gaye version, which itself is a classic, and I acknowledge that. But but as the film reminds us, so is theirs. And I just, and I just would like to go on record saying that. All right. Well, it's just about, just about, just about time to uh, go to a break. So that's what we're going to do. And we'll be back.
Now is the time I get to say my oh happy day. Thank yous to uh, Lily Tyson, celebrity producer, for producing producing this episode. She's uh, with us for the summer, uh, and uh, it's great to have her. Uh, and it's actually the first time that Jonathan McPants has not produced an episode of The Nose for 95 consecutive he, – he's breaking his Cal Ripken streak of 95 episodes. So um, – but it's, you know, I mean, Lily – we haven't lost a step with Lily. Also, Cat Pastors here in the studio as technical producer, uh, making, all, making sure all this stuff happens the way it's supposed to. Uh, so our panelists today are Tanisha Dugan, artistic producer at Theater Works, Steve Metcalf, director emeritus at the University of Hartford's President's College, lots of other things as well and our overall – musical guru. So it's time to make some recommendations here. Um, what shall we recommend, Tanisha? Uh, so I'm going to start with a person. Uh, her name is Lynette Vinny. Um, you can find her on Instagram at underscore Lineezy, L-Y-N-E-E-Z-Y, starting with an underscore. She's a historian and thinker, and she's absolutely hilarious. And she sort of lands a lot of things happening in our moment uh, in a way uh, with real historical data and a, con- a context for how we handle um, each other today. So I love, I love her, and I think you should follow her underscore L-Y-N-E-E-Z-Y on Instagram. And I'm going to endorse Boho Chocolate Factory, which is based out of Florence, Massachusetts. They make amazing chocolate. It has been something that has kept me and and the artists I work with um, fortified uh, this (laughs) summer. Uh, they're artisan made. It's bean to bar chocolate. Delicious, delicious. Boho chocolate. Where can Um, you, where, where can we get that? So you can find it locally at the Whole Foods, but you can only find it at the Whole Foods at Bishop's Corner. <laughs> but you can also the best uh, go, go online. Um, yeah, I know. The Whole Foods, it used to be Wild Oats. Oh, yeah. remember those days? I um, <laughs> but you can also get it at, at bohochocolate.com, B-O-H-O chocolate.com. Um, and you can see their full range. There's all kinds of delicious um variations from your classic milk chocolate to things more exciting like lemongrass and I I believe they have a corn corn pudding flavor which I think uh, people really do much very much enjoy Uh, so Mr. Steve Metcalf what are you going to recommend to us well I I have two absolutely shameless things I'm going to mention I'm told uh, it's permissible to do that the first is that the uh, distinguished uh, guitar cello duo Boyd meets girl Uh, is going to be appearing at the Hillstead Museum on Friday, August 13th at 6 p.m., an outdoor concert. Uh, This this duo is the distinguished Australian guitarist Rupert Boyd and the equally distinguished American cellist Laura Metcalf, whose uh, career I have followed quite closely (laughs) over the years. And they, they really are sensational, and they're playing at the Hillstead on Friday, August 13th. The other thing uh, I want to mention, which you alluded, alluded to, Colin, is uh, I have retaken the reins of the Garmony uh, Chamber Music Concert Series out at the Hart School, and I'm delighted to say that series, after having been dark all of last year, like most everything, is going to be resuming, and I'm not uh, quite able to say publicly the, what the full lineup of artists uh, is going to be, but we'll have that very shortly on the on the website at the Hart School. Uh, but I can tell you that the first concert will be October the 28th uh, at the Hart School's Millard Auditorium. So please circle that and please be aware that the great uh, Garmony series is going to resume. 
really is a great series. And in the past, uh, because of Mr. Metcalf's efforts, I mean, I've been able to see acts like Bang in a Can All-Stars and uh, Room Full of Teeth and just some amazing kind of new kind of chamber-sized uh, music that that I wouldn't have encountered any other way. I can also cr- cross endorse Boyd meets Girl. I mean, look, Laura's Steve's daughter and my niece, so you can't trust either one of us. But they are really good. Um, I'm going to uh, endorse uh, a. Po- I need to overhaul my podcast anyway, so I'm going to endorse a podcast called Object of Sound. It's hosted by Hanif. Uh, Dora Kib, uh, he lives in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where he is a poet and music scholar. Um, and it's it's a podcast, as perhaps the title suggests, about music. And it's about, well, I mean, one of the ways that I discovered it was that he did a very thorough and interesting interview with Questlove. It's why I know all this little nitty gritty stuff, uh, at least part of why I know all this little <laughs> nitty gritty stuff uh, about Summer of Soul. But I mean, it, his I like his style a lot. I am adding him to my subscription uh, my podcast subscriptions, and I, I recommend that you do that too. And then just sort of per Stevie Wonder, and there's so much stuff, and I've already recommended some Stevie Wonder stuff. I'm just going to mention a couple of kind of funky little things that are, you can find on YouTube that are fun. And they're both, well, two of the three, there's three of them. So two of them are from the big Stevie Wonder tribute that was done a number of years ago. It was kind of hosted or emceed by Beyonce. The opening sequence, which has Beyonce, Gary Clark Jr., and of all people, Ed Sheeran. Uh, and it's just the whole thing is terrific. I mean, she just takes over the room at the beginning and does fingertips and does, oh, I just uh, just Google it. Google it. Watch it on YouTube. And then I know you're gonna, it's, it's going to sound crazy, but um, then listen to a separate. There's a separate clip of Ed Sheeran doing uh, this very strange but wonderful version of "I Was Made to Love Her," which is a, a Stevie song that I've kind of fallen. I've fallen back in love with the Stevie version over the course of this summer. I mean, what's not to love? But um, and, and but he does this thing with a kind of a pedal controlled guitar effects. It's just him up there, uh, and, and a pedal controlled vocal track that he's pre-recorded, and it's really kind of interesting. Um, and then lastly, um, uh, Esperanza Spalding at the Obama White House doing Overjoyed, uh, and uh, I have this theory. Just the way I have kind of a crush on Cecily Strong. I have this theory that Obama had kind of a crush on, a harmless crush on Esperanza Spalding. And you can kind of see why in that she's so amazing. She does such an incredible job uh, with this number. Uh, and it's always kind of interesting to see somebody sing and play a stand-up bass, somebody who's not Dick's mother's uh, uh, sing and play a stand-up bass, which she does uh, pretty amazingly there too. So those are your that's your homework for the weekend. Plus you, you need some boho chocolates. Uh, you can you know listen to some Boyd Beats Girl, and you're going to have a really good uh, weekend. Although you, what you should really do is watch the two things we talked about today. Thanks to everybody who listened and helped out. Uh, thanks especially to Cat Pastor, Lily Tyson, and we'll be back on Monday. Vernon, I would have said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.